Good morning, good morning. I did the blue-purple thing again. That was an accident. It always takes a minute to get your composure after, after singing. It's, I, I love that time. Just get to move toward God when the Word tells us in John 4 that we, we worship in spirit and truth, and that's what the Father seeks. And our lives are, in essence, a whole long worship service now when you come to Christ. But there are these high points, like just then, getting to sing and on Sunday morning worshiping together. But then there's a transition, kind of, oh, moving up here and opening the Word. This time of year, I love this time of year. I start feeling a little frisky, like, maybe that's not the right word to use, but... I just love it when it starts getting cold. And, and I'm, a, I'm a big boy, and so I get hot really fast. And, and so when the temperature gets into the 40s and 30s, I just come alive. I just love it. And even yesterday, I got to go out for a nice long walk, and the Babs were really nice. They saw me and asked me if I needed a ride, and I turned it down just before the real rain started. <laughs> so I, uh, But I just love it. And there's times, you know, this time of year, I'm not sure, there are certain triggers, certain times of the year that, that smell in the air, that briskness, you wake up in the morning, you go outside, and, and there's just something you feel, and, and it reminds you of something, right? Or, or even yesterday with the rain, everybody, this is probably an overly used illustration, but everybody has a memory that's attached to rainstorms. In fact, you probably have 20 of them, but depending on you know, where you are that moment when you smell after a rain or when the rain starts, something just comes to mind. Usually it's mom's chicken soup or, you know, usually it's just something peaceful, something that you really enjoy. And I got to do that yesterday, just walk around and just smell. And, and I didn't smell Greeley and that was wonderful. And it, it rained hard enough to keep Greeley on the ground. And it was just a wonderful time. And we're going to talk about a little of that today in our passage, aromas and smells. And it's just such an, an interesting illustration in the word. And we're going to hit that word a couple of times today. Now let's read our passage. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 2. And we're going to finish up chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. And we're going to take this in sections this morning. Instead of reading the whole thing, I'm going to read pieces of it. And then we're going to go through pieces of it so that, that we can really focus in on the parts that, that we want to focus in on. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12. Now, when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was open for me in the Lord, I had no rest for my spirit, not finding Titus, my brother. But taking my leave from them, I went on to Macedonia. And that's where we're going to take this one first. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I already feel the rolling starting. God, I pray that you would speak to us through your word this morning. God, I pray specifically that you would slow down my spirit and that your word would have effect. God, I pray for those people this morning that don't know you. God, that this would be the morning that they would, that they would just give their life to you fully 
And God, for those of us who do know you, Lord, would you use this morning to prune us, to woo us into a deeper relationship with you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I had a 90-mile-an-hour week this week, and so everything is just go, go, go. And it just manifested itself by running up here and starting to preach without even asking God to bless the time. (laughs) Forgive me for that. These first two verses, Paul is ending a narrative. Now, two weeks ago, we went through the long adjustment as to why Paul adjusted his plans and didn't go to Corinthians. And the Corinthians were saying, well, wait a minute, this guy's all feeble in his thinking and he can't even keep his plans straight when he makes plans and drawn at straws to, to try and mess his character up. And so Paul, by the time he wrote this letter, we learned that he already knows that the Corinthians have repented. They're following Christ fully. He writes this letter. But then he explains to them why it was he didn't go to Corinth right away. And it's interesting, as we've gone through these pieces in the last couple of weeks, he gets to this spot, and then he ends the narrative with, I went to Macedonia, and it just stops. He doesn't tell him anything. Now, it's going to pick up again four chapters from now, and he's going to finish off this narrative as to what happened when he got to Macedonia. But he takes a little detour and says, you know what? There's some things we have to talk about first. (laughs) When he's in Macedonia, his soul is troubled about things. And he goes directly into thanking God. So listen to what he says, though, because we can't just miss this ending of the narrative. He says that he went to Troas for the gospel of Christ. Where Paul went, Paul preached. When Paul went to the local 7-Eleven to get his Slurpee, if God presented an opportunity... Do they still sell Slurpees at 7-Eleven? We don't have a 7-Eleven here. If God presented an opportunity for him to shine and share Christ with somebody, he's on it. When he went to Troas, he went to Troas mostly because he got thrown out of Ephesus. Right? There's a riot in Ephesus and he had to go. And so as he was leaving, he headed up to Troas. But his purpose in mind was, when I get to Troas, let's see what God does. He gets to Troas and he starts preaching. And it says that a door for the Lord was opened up. So when he got there, he went about his business, preaching, shining and sharing Jesus just like he always does. And God opened a door and he stayed there and planted a church in Troas. We see that in Acts 20. That he planted a church in Troas... But it says he didn't really want to be there. Now just hold on to that for a minute. God sends you somewhere, and you're a believer, so you know that God doesn't make mistakes. He doesn't send you places for no reason. So you get there and you start looking for opportunities, but you really don't want to be there. How do you respond to that? This gets personal for me, and a number of you I've talked to about this. I go to California a lot for work, and and when I get there, I don't want to be there. And I struggle immensely looking for opportunities to talk to people, because all I really want to do is survive, eat sushi, and go home. That's all I want to do. And so when I'm there, you know, as I was reading this, I thought, wow, you know, no matter where this guy goes, he's looking for that opportunity. But then he's, he's looking for the opportunity... What does God do? It says there in the end of verse 12, 
And when a door was opened for me in the Lord, he started preaching, look at the opportunity, and even with a heavy heart, he fulfills what God called him to do there. Now that wasn't just a flippant way to end a narrative or begin a new paragraph, because what you're going to see is in this whole passage, that mentality, that character, that desire to plant wherever he's grown to bear fruit is all what he's going to say in the next five verses. I had no rest, so he ended up leaving and going to Macedonia. What do you think happened in Macedonia? We won't know till chapter 7. That could be months from now. So I'm just going to give you a little hint. He found Titus. Okay, And so he's very excited. And that excitement is coming out right here where he says, verse 14, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. His heart is downcast. He ends on this downcast note, but then says, but thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Let's keep reading. I want to read down to verse 16. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and to those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? So Paul is stealing an example from Roman life here. When a general would go away, and every commentary says the exact same thing. Because in Josephus, Josephus actually wrote up a long description of a triumph parade and so every commentator says the exact same thing about this passage which made it really easy to figure out what the illustrations were a general would go and conquer a land not just go and and like bring it back into submission or go and, and put down an uprising or something like that no, no no when he went and conquered a brand new area and put it in total subjection. The region is stable. They're producing. We got taxes. We got people. The economy is back in shape. And they're all loyal to Rome. This general would come back. And this may happen once, maybe once in a lifetime. And the general would have a parade called a triumph. And what would happen is in the parade, all of those who go before the general are those that he brought back as captives from this land that are going to be freed into Rome to become Roman citizens. The artisans, those that are, uh, all, the, all the engineers and software people, I'm sure, are in that group, all those that are very useful in society are put there in the front. The ones that they've deemed useful to society get put in the front. But then behind the general was the group of people that were going to end up in the Colosseum. A sport fed to the lions, whatever. And there's a big group of them behind the general. As they go forward, the priests are all mingled around and they're carrying these censers. And the censers are incense burning and there's this smoke just billowing all around this huge crowd. So you have to just imagine this, this massive group of people marching through the city of Rome with this smoke, just incense flowing out of everywhere because this is a triumph. And the Roman people make all these garlands of flowers and they cast them down to this great general. And so there's flowers being crushed everywhere. And so there's this, this aroma 
that's just permeating through the streets of Rome. And at the end of the procession, at the very end of the parade, sits the emperor. And the emperor smells the victory. He smells the expansion of the Roman Empire. And every time they use this incense, it has the same meaning. That Rome is marching forward. So Paul steals this this example from Roman life and puts it in this passage. Let's look at verse 14. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. This is just what happened in Troas. He went through Troas, and God opened a door, manifest the knowledge of himself through Paul to the people of Troas, and planted a church. Now, this is not some mamby-pamby cognitive recognition knowledge. It's not I can fill in the blank knowledge about God. Paul didn't go and say, um, this is the God of the universe, his name is, and, and then now can you fill out this? This kind of knowledge, as it's used often in scripture, is knowledge of fullness. It's the, it's the knowledge that demands action. And so when it says he manifests his knowledge everywhere, it's using it a lot like in this Roman parade. The kingdom of God just expanded. It moved forward because people with that knowledge repented and were redeemed from that fruit. Now let's look at some of the words in that passage. Manifest through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. When I studied the first time through the Old Testament, one of the things that I really grabbed onto was there is not one time in history when God did not have a people established to bring his name, to show him glory throughout the world. Right? We start all the way back with Adam. And then we, from Adam we move into, eventually we get to Abraham, but we had Noah in the middle. God always has a group of people, a family, that's glorifying him and making his name known to the rest of the world. And even when we get to Abraham, as you see through Abraham, God chooses certain branches off of Abraham's family tree to carry his name forward. And eventually we get to Israel. And then Israel's given the charge to take his name and glorify it to people in, through the whole world as they go and they conquest through the, the promised land. The same thing. They're taking God's name through the entire world. And today, it says this. The end of verse 14, it manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. Today, in the last days, in this church dispensation, meaning in this bulk of time in, in biblical history, the church is that group of people who has been called to glorify God's name and bring God to the rest of the planet. That is our call. He's called the church to glorify himself to the rest of the world. We see it here. What about Acts 1.8? Acts 1.8 is one of my favorite verses. 
Acts 1.8, Jesus says, wait, wait, don't leave Jerusalem because you will receive power from on high when the Holy Spirit comes on you so that you can be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and Windsor, right? To the ends of the earth. You're going to go and be my group of people that is going to witness for me and let me manifest the knowledge of myself through you to everyone else. Now, the way I'm going to be very careful at how I say that over and over and over again. It isn't us that's pulling ourselves up by boot. I don't have bootstraps, but pulling ourselves up by bootstraps and going out there and uncome. I'm going to witness. I'm going to tell people about it. That's not it. It says God is going to manifest himself through you to other people. And I'm going to say it very carefully that way over and over and over again as we go through this passage because it keeps repeating itself. And in the end, the how do we do that falls right out. Let's do Romans 10:14. How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one that they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? What is our task? To take the knowledge of God to the rest of the world. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. We'll get to that one in a second. You do that. Yesterday I was sitting with a man having a conversation. And... I'm burdened for this man. I want to see this man come to Christ. Some events have changed in his life that make the conversation, I think, very ready. He needs to hear the gospel again. And so God brings the opportunity, and I'm sitting there four inches from his face, talking and praying and and leading and leading, and then he just jumps ship. Tells me how bad we live. He, he, he knew where we were going. And he jumped ship. And I'm just sitting there going, Oh! Why? Why don't you see that you need God? To me, it's perfectly clear. <laughs> it's perfectly clear why I need him. Okay, maybe not perfectly clear. But it's very clear. And it's very clear why you need him. Why is it you don't give in? And 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the God of this age has blinded the minds of the unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. These people have been, been caught by the bandits in the woods. They're held captive by their own lusts and their own desires and their own whatever, and they will not respond. And I can beat on them and yell at them and talk to them over and over until they get tired of me. But if God's calling them to himself, then one of those times, they are going to respond. It is my job to be available to God so that he can manifest the knowledge of himself to other people. It's not my job to wonder where this person is and why they're not following God and why they're not responding. How can they believe in the one they haven't heard of? They can't. 
And even if you've told them 46 times, they're blind. And the 47th time might be that time when God has exposed everything to them and God's calling them to himself and brings you in front of them and says, tell them again. Tell them again, I'm calling them to myself now. It's not our job to worry about what God's doing in their life. It's our job to avail ourselves to God so that he can manifest his knowledge through us to other people. God leads us in triumph and manifests through us. So the question first there is, are we available for that manifesting? Verse 15. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and in those who are perishing. So we go back to the illustration again. There are two groups of people in this triumph. There are those people who are going to be liberated and become Roman citizens, and there are those people who are going to be thrown into the Colosseums and the lions will have their lunch. There are both kinds of people here. But the person at the end of the procession, the emperor, smells victory. That's all. But to the different people there, it's a different aroma. To you, when you smell the rain, you might think of mom's house or whatever. Somebody else, when they smell rain, might think, the last time I was in a flood and couldn't get out. Right? The aroma does different things to different people. Well, that's what he's saying here. We are an aroma of Christ to God. Now, if a Jew were to hear this, if a Hebrew were to hear this, immediately they would think back to the law. They would think through Leviticus. They would think through Exodus, where over and over and over the phrase soothing aroma to God is used for sacrifice. It is a soothing aroma to God. And when we say that we are an aroma of Christ to God, the aroma is the sacrifice. This word is used only a handful of times in the New Testament. Every single time this word is used of sacrifice of some sort. And it's interesting, we have three words for aroma. Really, there's only two, but one is used twice. In verse 14 and verse 16, we use the word for just smell. It's an aroma. But here, Paul gets really specific and says, can't use just that word. We don't want this to be misinterpreted. It is the sweet fragrance of the sacrifice of Christ to God. Now, this verse is kind of odd. What do you mean that we are a fragrance of Christ to God. Now we can chew on that one all day long because there's a lot of there's a lot of what in that, right? There's another there's an equally odd verse in Colossians 1:24. And it says something like this. It says that Paul we we keep in our flesh all the things that are lacking in Christ's sacrifice. Wait a minute, I'm an Orthodox Christian. Nothing was lacking in Christ's sacrifice. So what does that verse mean? Let me actually read it exactly. Now I rejoice in what was suffered to you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body, which is the church. Lacking? I thought what Christ did was complete. Well, since we know it was complete, this must mean something else. Well, it means the same thing as it means here when it says we're a fragrance of Christ to God. The thing that's lacking 
in Christ's affliction is the personal invitation to it. When we go to those who don't know Christ, we are the part that's lacking, that personal touch, that invitation, that grace with skin on. We are that aroma. God has called us, the church, to be those that manifest the knowledge of him throughout the world. That's the part that's lacking. That's the aroma. It's us. We're to do that task that God's called us to. We are the aroma to those being saved and those who are perishing. The scripture often breaks the human population into two groups. Those that are being saved and will one day spend eternity with God. And those who have not called on Jesus and will spend eternity away from God in hell. This morning I heard of a conversation that happened over the weekend because that exclusivity of the gospel offends many people. And if you sit in a coffee shop and you say, Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father, no one goes to heaven except through the gate of Christ, you very well may offend someone because you're close-minded, you're narrow, and you're probably uneducated about the way the real world works. And if you've ever shared the gospel with anybody, you've come across some of that, that, that attitude, because the Bible, the scripture, the gospel is exclusive. And Jesus put it perfectly. He said, wide is the gate. That leads to destruction. And lots of people just hurry to it. They're plugged into that and going 100 miles an hour and don't care. And he said, narrow is the gate that leads to life. In fact, it's one man narrow. It's me. I am the gate. And few will find it. Not because I haven't made myself obvious to the whole world. As Tate prayed this morning, sends the rain on the just and the unjust. God makes his glory known to everyone. Everyone. We choose not to worship him. So it's not that Christ didn't make his glory known to everyone. It's that we determine we're not going to go through that gate. There are two groups of people in the world. Those that will spend eternity with God and those that won't. Now I want to get sober here. I heard a story once of two businessmen walking down the street and and one of the businessmen knew the other one was a Christian and he said to him, Now, you really believe that Jesus Christ is God and that you have to receive him for the forgiveness of your sins and then you're giving your life and you live for him wholly for the rest of your life and that you're going to spend eternity with him in heaven. And if I don't believe that, I'm going to go to hell and be tormented for eternity. And the Christian said, well, yes, that's what I believe. That's what the Bible says. And I, yes, I believe that. And he stopped and he turned to him and he said, if I believe that, I would tell every person that I know, escape this. Escape. Here's the way to heaven. If I believe that, if I truly believe that, I would tell everyone how to get out of this. Because you're trapped. 
Now, the question is, would he really? Who knows? But the point is the same. This is a sober moment. There are two roads. And there are a lot of people on one that are dying. And as a Christian, you know what the destiny is. That should be sobering. And Paul follows that up then in verse 16. To the one, we are an aroma from death to death. We're still the sweet fragrance to God as we preach God's gospel, as we're reflecting God's glory and we're we're putting God's name and we're letting him manifest the knowledge of himself through us to the world. God is pleased. We have to get that. God is pleased when he is glorified. He takes great joy in that, regardless of the outcome of that manifestation, regardless of when we say something, somebody says, I don't believe that. Be done. God is still pleased with you glorifying him. But when you preach the gospel to somebody and you tell them, you become a stench. That's what you are. Because what you're telling them is the way they believe is going to lead them to damnation. Not to God. And you take them increasingly from death to death and you share it to them again to death and it just gets worse and worse and you get nastier and nastier and nastier. That aroma is no longer a sweet aroma to them. Now note, it's still an acceptable sweet aroma to God. But to them, it's death to death. If you believe the gospel, if you truly believe Jesus Christ died for your sins and that you receive him and that he gives you his righteousness so that one day you are going to be with God, that you get to spend eternity with your creator and that the flip side of that is total separation from God and perishing If you understand and you believe the gospel and you share with somebody and they reject you, that should affect you. Now, here's a confession of mine. I love to argue. I'm not going to call it a gift. I love to argue. And I'm convicted by this passage. Because what I do is I'm sitting four inches from this man's face as I just want him to say, you're right. You're right. And when he doesn't say that, I walk away going, dang it. Lost that one. It's not that I lost the man. It's that I didn't win the debate. And I feel this way and I go away and there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And I'm so thankful for that. But I have to reprocess, I have to post-process that event because I go away with this pride that says, oh, I lost the beat. Thinking like somehow that was all about me instead of, oh, God, keep him alive and don't give up on him and lead somebody else into his life today while he's still fresh meat. God, don't let him go. And so often, that's not my attitude. So often I lost the debate and I go and kick the can and, and go home. But if you truly believe the gospel and somebody rejects it, that should damage you. That should hurt. 
But to those who are being saved, just as to those that are being perishing, it gets increasingly more of a stench. To those that are being saved, it gets just more sweet and more sweet and more sweet. And when you share the gospel with somebody and they respond, there is nothing in the Christian experience more glorious than seeing somebody go, how do you become a Christian? And just chomping at the bit like a dog trying to get a bone. Right? They just... They just want God. God's been leading them and you get to get to tell them the gospel and they respond and they respond with so much fervency and they so desire to get into all these things and God really attaches to their life. There is nothing more satisfying in the Christian experience than God manifesting himself through you that somebody else gets to pick that fruit and come to him. Life to life. And Paul ends that statement by saying this. Who is adequate for that task? Paul fully understood that when you reject this gospel, you reject the creator of the universe who's trying to bring you back and reconcile you to himself. And we're going to spend the next number of chapters talking about the ministry of reconciliation that God has given us. But he's leading it right here and he's saying, if you reject it, I know what that means. That's a burden that is too heavy for me to bear. Knowing that my responsibility in talking to you, I want to be a man of crisis. This is a Jim Elliott quote. A man of crisis where somebody comes and meets me, he can't just walk away going, hey, that dude was cool. But you end up being a fork in the road for him where you're talking, you get to know this person and all of a sudden because you're in this man's life, he has to make a decision. Is he going to follow Christ or is he going to reject Christ? Who's up for that task? Who can do that? And we think that's a rhetorical question. Well, of course the answer is going to be God. Because I read ahead in verse... 5, chapter 3 says, our sufficiency comes in God. But it says, our sufficiency comes from God. Who's adequate for this task? Any of you who have the Holy Spirit, those of you who are saved, those of you who have been given this task, this ministry of reconciliation, the task to allow God to manifest himself through you to other people, you are adequate. We are adequate for this task because the Holy Spirit is going to work through us. And as we just cling to God and abide in Christ, that fruit is going to be there for people to come and to do these tasks and God will strengthen us. Apart from me, you can't do anything. You weren't meant to do anything. You weren't meant to bear fruit spiritually. You weren't meant to call people to me and let me manifest myself through you apart from me. Did you catch that? You were meant to do these things while abiding in me. Are you adequate for this task? By yourself, you shouldn't be. If you can stare at a person and tell them the gospel and they reject it and you smile and walk out with your new latte, you are not wired correctly. But when they reject the message and leave you 
you still walk out with your latte and it may look the same, but you're just perplexed. Like, God, what is it? And then you just give it back and say, Holy Spirit, you are in control of this man's life. You're in control of this lady's life. Bring somebody else to them. Call them to yourself. And you turn that back over to God, who's the one that's going to bear the fruit anyway. Who is adequate? I want to read a piece here out of my new happy book. Because so often we come to Christ and we know that it's by grace that we're saved. Through faith, it's not of yourself. Nobody can boast. God saved you. We're all orthodox. We believe that. But then once we're saved, we take it very seriously that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And it's our job now to get out there and witness. Get out there and talk to them. Get out there and do these things with the burden on my back. Apart from Christ. I just go and do. Now, I'm not going to let anybody off the hook of sharing Christ with people. That'll come in just a second. But I want to, I want to turn this to where the fruit is meant to come from. It's not meant from those of us that are, I don't really know what type A means, but let's just say you, uh, you're, you're driven. You're driven to accomplish things. And maybe I'm the only person in here that's that way, but if I wake up in the morning, I, I want to accomplish something by the end of the day and accomplish something else, and, and I'm always trying to climb ladders and whatever it takes to do that. Okay? And then you come to Christ, and the same thing happens. Okay, I see my marching orders. I see what I need to do. And you start climbing, and you find yourself empty, and you're still doing it, and you're still doing these things, but you just don't have the heart for it. And so often as Christians, we take it upon ourselves thinking it's our duty to go be Christian apart from Christ. And so this really spoke to me when I read this, because that's my heart. That's how I do things. And I find myself wearing out there. Our doing and working are but the fruit of Christ's work in us. It is when the soul becomes utterly passive, looking and resting on what Christ is to do, that the energies are stirred to its highest activity. And we work most effectively because we know that he works in us. It is as we see those words, in me, meaning abide in me, the mighty energies of love reaching out after us to have us and to hold us that all the strength of our will is called to abide in him. One of our core values is intimacy with Christ. We want to create environments at Windsor Community Church that allow us all to get closer and more intimate with Christ. Because as we abide in Christ... As we sit and just enjoy the Savior, the sap from the vine fills us. And we have no choice genetically but to bear fruit. But apart from Christ running around on our own strength, we're not bearing fruit. You see that? And so this piece to me when I read this it's very important that we sit and we abide. We're in the scripture. We're reading. We're trying to soak in the heart of God. God, what is it about my life? God, make me more like you. God, show me yourself. And brothers and sisters and me, this takes time. Precious 
golden time to abide in Christ. But when he says, we are meant so that God can manifest through us the knowledge of himself to other people, that is bearing fruit. As we abide in Christ, our DNA forces us to bear fruit. You can't help. When you're enjoying God, you can't help to be four inches from that man's face telling him about the God you serve. When you're tired out in God and just six church meetings this week. It's hard to sit across the table from somebody and say, let me tell you about the God I serve. Let me tell you about the joy he's given me. I'm not going to tell you about the new car he gave me. I'm going to tell you about the joy that's in my soul after I lost that new car. We must make ourselves available to God so that he can manifest himself through us everywhere. That's this passage. Who's adequate? We are. Because we have the Holy Spirit. But apart from Christ, we can do nothing. He finishes this up with verse 17. Verse 17. For we are not like many peddling the word of God, but as for sincerity... But as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Now he ends this because he says, who's adequate? We believe this. Unlike those people, this is his first attack on the false teachers in Corinth. Unlike those false teachers that are coming, peddling the gospel, trying to make a living off of you, we believe it. We believe that if you reject this gospel, if you go back to legalism, you're condemning yourself. We believe that. Unlike people that are going to come and tickle your ear and tell you what you want, go for a little bit of church growth, make an upline, that's not us. We're telling you the truth of God. And it's an interesting word, sincere, here. They make pottery, and if pottery had a crack in it, the huckster, the, the dishonest people would kind of rub some wax in there. So if you pick it up, you can't see it. You're like, oh, it's great. You take it home, and you pour your hope into it. You pour your water into it. And what happens? Well, it blows out the wax and it's gone. The word sincere means tested by the sun, tested by trial, tested by what God's doing in our life. And you see that in our life, we are sincere, that what we preach to you has been tested by fire and our life reflects the glory of God. And so God is manifesting himself through us to you. Let's pray. God, your word is so clear. God, as we read it, I pray that we're not just looking at the imperative do's and don'ts, but God, that you expose your heart to us. God, what it is you long for us to be. God, I thank you that you have called us to be part of your plan. God, and for every believer here, God, I would pray that you would you would restore joy. You would bring them joy in the hope of knowing who you are and the plans that you have for us. And God, would you be jealous for our time?
God, every believer in here that desires more and more of you, God, that you would you would supernaturally orchestrate their schedule so that they can sit and just drink deep from you. And God, through this week, I would pray that that would manifest itself in opportunity to glorify you by sharing your gospel with other people. How would you give each of us that opportunity this week and fill this building with stories of how you glorified yourself? I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.